Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for praying with us. Uh, we don't always do that before the sermon, but um, that was uh, just a real blessing for me. Um, today, we're actually finishing our series on community, and the main thrust of this whole series has been that the church is a divine community. Right? The church is a divine community, and we've been crafted by God to love one another, and in doing so, display the love of God to one another to reveal the power of the gospel to the world. And so that's really what this series has been about, uh, that um, community is not something that we just build around our own self-interests, not around our own affinities and our own lifestyle, but community is something that God builds through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, that, and that's really the heart of the church. We have been gathered by a person. We are gathered to a person in Christ, and the product of that is that we're now brothers and sisters, right? We're all branches in this vine, and uh, we're gathered together uh, to love one another, to love God, and, and to demonstrate the power of the gospel to the world. And then last week, in the third message of the series, uh, we addressed the importance of the role of solitude in community. And then that might sound like a paradox, the idea of solitude and community all being in a, in a series and complementing one another. But we learn that God uses our personal times of solitude, right? To plant seeds of grace, right? Where we can abide in him, where we can feast upon his word and, and commune with him in prayer. And that as he plants those seeds in our souls, that that bears fruit in community. That, there's, that bears fruit in the church. And so God uses solitude so that we can practice healthy community with one another, and so solitude and community are both essential parts of the Christian life. And so if this is your first time here and you're like, oh my gosh, those sound kind of interesting, um, you can catch up with the series uh, through our website or you can check out our podcast. Uh, we launched this like this spring and I love the fact that we have a podcast and uh, it's faithfully curated by our media team. And so I just wanna thank Alvin and, and Jimmy and you guys do an awesome job of keeping us up to date. Yeah. And so check us out there. Well, today's the final message in the series, and it's actually directly tied to the vision of our church here at All Nations. And so if you didn't know, you can open up your bulletins, and I think it's on the back. Uh, our vision statement is there. And our vision is to become a God-glorifying, interdependent church that makes disciples of all nations and all generations by the power of the gospel. Okay. Um, and today, we really want to just press on that last phrase, to make disciples of all generations, right, uh, by the power of the gospel. Uh, today's message is directly tied into our vision, which is not to just be a church of our peers, not just to be a church of, of people who look like us and, and live like us, but to truly be an intergenerational church. And as I thought about this message and as I reflected upon my own life, my own, uh, my own journey and my Christian growth, I realized that, that nothing has blessed me more than intergenerational ministry. Nothing has enriched me more than intergenerational ministry. From older generations, I've been mentored and affirmed. Ever since I was in high school, uh, I had the benefit and privilege of, of, of spending time with my youth pastors, uh, my college pastors, my campus ministry pastors, and my local church pastors who all mentored me and they discipled me. They affirmed me. They showed me what it meant to be a man who, who lives for Christ. They showed me what it meant to, to be a man who serves Christ and, and loves the church. On top of that, I've always been 
a person who's not only been blessed by older generations, I've been so challenged, right? And I've been so sharpened by my own peers and my own generation. I've always loved serving my generation. Whether I was in high school, I loved serving the high school ministry or college. I was very involved in our campus ministry and in our college group. And so whatever generation I'm at, uh, in, I'm always looking for other peers, other brothers and sisters to run with and serve Christ with. And when I find them, when I found you guys, man, that just gives me so much joy, so much pleasure, and, and, and fuels in me so much passion to continue to serve Christ. And from my experience of serving younger generations, um, I've been so enriched. I've been so encouraged. Um, I've been so burdened to continue to proclaim Christ. You know, Paul the Apostle, he would often write to his churches that you are my glory. And that sounds like such a weird thing to say. You're my glory. You're like, aren't you like God for God's glory? But it's, it's with this heart of a spiritual father that as he's mentored young men like Timothy, right? And as he's made disciples in churches all over the Mediterranean, he realized that that produced in him so much life, so much joy to see the work of God in these younger brothers and sisters in a new generation. That was his glory and that was his joy. And for me, um, as a college pastor, as a worship director, every time I get to see other brothers and sisters that I've had the privilege of walking alongside and serving and mentoring. That's been so amazing for me. That's been so life-giving. And so truly, nothing has blessed me more than intergenerational ministry. And now church, that's, that's my hope for all of us here at All Nations. Not just for a lucky few like well-connected ones because there's some of you guys who do have friends who are college students single adults and you do hang out with the married couples and you babysit and and you're just super networked in and super well connected well my heart and my vision is not just for the few but for all of us here to experience the power and joy of intergenerational ministry I want you guys to be able to look around and see not a bunch of strangers not a bunch of others but you go that you guys would be able to see people you can learn from, people you can run with, and people you can pour into as a body of Christ. When people ask me about our church, um, it really is one of my great joys to share that, that God is building a community here that reflects a healthy balance of collegians, single adults, and married families. That's very unique, guys. Uh, there are so many churches that are bottom-heavy, Right? Uh, one of my friends' church, I joke that they're the biggest, poorest church in Southern California, right? Because they're like 300 people, but 250 college students, right? A lot of energy, a lot of poverty, right? And there's, there's a lot of other churches that are like heavy on the married families, right? They might have 100 people, and they're just all heavy hitters, great donors, married families, but they're also tired, because no one will look after their kids. No one will set up the chairs. No one will come and like run the PowerPoint. They're just like, oh, I just, I don't have the bandwidth right now. You're just, you're just glad, I'm just glad I'm here, right? But really it is a joy for me to share and see that God is raising up here at All Nations, a multi-generational church. And that God's gifted us with dynamic and healthy, joyful collegians single adults who are really growing in their faith and in their service and married families who can model for us uh, following Christ and raising up families in the Lord. Well, as we unpack this topic of 
becoming a community of all generations. We're going to look at uh, three things today in classic fashion. The first is this, the call, right? The call to disciple all generations, okay? It's, this is not just a vision statement. This is not just something that, that me and the leadership that we've crafted together. This is a biblical mandate that God has given us, a call to disciple all generations. Second, we're going to look at the challenge, right? The challenge of loving Right? And engaging with all generations, because that is hard. Okay? There's a challenge there. And finally, the hope. The hope of gathering all generations. So we're going to look at the call, the challenge, and the hope. Well, let's begin with our first text for today. And it comes from Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. And its passage is like this that gave birth to our vision statement here at All Nations. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark, dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Amen. Amen. The writer of this psalm, it wasn't actually King David. I know King David penned so many of them. It's actually a priest, a worship priest named Asaph. And Asaph was reflecting on the nation of Israel, and he was thinking about their spiritual heritage. And he was writing this psalm, and throughout the psalm, he's exhorting Israel to remember the Lord, to remember the Lord and to pass down the word of God to the coming generation, to remember that they heard and they received God's word. They heard of the wonders from God, from Moses and their spiritual fathers. And so he's saying, remember that word, remember those, those wonders, remember those promises, and then don't hide them from your children. Don't keep them from your children. Rather, declare them. Declare them to a coming generation. And so this command is clear. You read that psalm, you read those first eight, eight verses, it's very clear that the whole command is, tell the next generation about the truth and the wonders of God, right? It's so important. And the purpose is threefold. And we see this in verse seven. And he says, why should they do this? Why do you want to teach them the Bible? Have them memorize scripture, read it with them. Why do you do this for your kids? Three reasons. First, that they would set their hope in God, that they would hope in God. Number two, not forget the works of God. And number three, keep his commandments. That's all in verse seven. I'm not making that up as my own outline. It's just all in verse seven. They would hope in God, not forget the works of God. And third, keep his commandments. And what we want to realize is that each generation has that calling. Each generation has that responsibility to pass on the truths of God to pass down hope in God, to pass down knowledge of God, and to pass down obedience to God. Now, what does this look like? Right? 
And how do we do this? Reflecting on this passage, one theologian, he's actually one of my favorite writers and pastors. His name's Legan Duncan. I actually named my former rabbit after him, right? I named my pets after theologians. Um, Ligon Duncan, he, he writes this. He says this. When we do not trust in God, it either leads to despair or carnal security. We will either come to the point where we realize there is no security in things that we are trusting in and will despair, or we will get comfortable trusting in the things that don't last and will be secure in our delusion. Okay? We will be self-deceived. Church, isn't this true for us? Have you trusted in something that has failed you? Have you trusted, did you put all your eggs in something that totally let you down? Perhaps you are a young adult, recently graduated, and you were trusting in your college degree, that 4.0 GPA, that resume, all of your internships to help you land the job of your dreams. And now you're in the marketplace, you're on LinkedIn, right? You're, you're, you're on Monster and you're applying like crazy and it's rejection after rejection after rejection and it is leading you to despair. Or some of the older folks might remember that whole housing crash in the early 2000s. Perhaps you were trusting in your mortgage and you were trusting in your home to, to help you build wealth to help you establish financial security. And as the housing market just plummeted and crashed, it led you in despair. I have family members who had nervous breakdowns because of a loss of property value, loss of value there. And the opposite is true as well. Right? There's some of us who have experienced trusting and hoping in things of this world, and they let us down, and so we feel such despair, such loss. But there's other of us who've experienced a ton of success. Some of us who are actually enjoying a lot of security in our jobs, a lot of success, a lot of accomplishments. Some of us enjoy beautiful, fantastic health. Some of you are so attractive right? That, that door's just open for you, right? You experience a whole nother level of customer service that common people do not experience, and you, real, and, and, and you just take that for granted, right? And you trust in that. You love that. You delight in it. Here's the thing. We don't realize that all of those things, whether it's our success, our wealth, all, our health, they're all temporary. They will not last. Just little, live a little longer, and you'll realize that those things do not last. But we are all called to hope in God. We are called to remember who he is and all that he has done. And if you keep reading the 78th Psalm, Asaph writes to Israel, and he's like, remember Moses. Remember the great and mighty plagues that God thundered down upon Egypt, your oppressors. Remember the parting of the Red Sea and how you walked across dry land. Remember how God led you as a flame through the night and a cloud by day. Remember all of his provisions. Remember the commandments God gave you on Mount Sinai. Remember the Lord. You see, when we do that, when we remember who God is and all that he has done and when we know and, and, and hope in him and believe that there's none like him, we have an anchor for our souls that remains steadfast through every trial, that reminds us to be humble in light of every victory, 
And that serves as a testimony to our children and to all generations. Uh, I'm going to speak to our families uh, for this section because I think it directly speaks to parents and families. You see, we tend to think of hope as an invisible thing, right? We think of hope and faith and trust as, as invisible, intangible things. But I want to tell you that your hope is visible, okay? Hope is something you can see in people. You can see when they have it, and you can see when they lose it. Your family, your friends, parents, your children, they know what you're hoping in. They know what you're trusting in. They can see it. How do they see it? By the way you handle success and failure, okay? By the way you handle success and failure, okay? If, if you are the type of person who every time something difficult happens at work, every time something happens at your job or you lose a job or there's a pay cut, you lose a client and whatever, whatever it might be, and you just go into this deep, dark despair, like the world is now over. I just lost X number of dollars. I lost this client, whatever it might be. Your family sees it. Your friends see it. They see where your hope was and how that all came crashing down, right? See, hope is so visible because you just can't hide it, right? When you put your hope in things and you receive it, you attain it, you grasp it, it produces in us joy. It produces in us satisfaction. And, and, and parents, when your children see your joy and satisfaction placed in the things of this world, you're showing them what you're trusting in. You're showing them what satisfies and fulfills you. But we're called to pass on not hope in this world, not hope in education, not hope in work, not hope in ourselves, but we're called to pass on hope in God. The second challenge that we have is to pass on not just hope in God, but the knowledge of God. Parents, what do you say to your children? What are your common conversations like every day? Have you ever shared the gospel with your children? Do you read scripture to your children? Do you quote scripture to your children? I want to tell you, a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of, of, of uh, doing three infant baptisms, and I almost cried. Because the first baby, who was this beautiful young boy named Zachariah, and I looked at him, and I had never done this before, and I said, Zachariah, Jesus came for you, and he died for you, and he rose again for you. And I had never shared the gospel with a baby before. <laughs> But it was a beautiful, like transformative experience for me. And I ask you, parents, have you not just prayed that for your kids, because I'm sure you have, have you spoken that to your children? The truth of the gospel, the light of scripture. You see, uh, kind of funny illustration. One of my friends, he's a pastor at another church in Orange County. And a couple years ago, for Father's Day, they made a video. And they filmed all, their, all these little cute, beautiful kids. And they asked the kids some questions. And there were two questions. And here's the first question. He says, what does your daddy tell you? Okay, like first, what is your daddy always telling you? And then second question, what do you want to tell your daddy? Okay, so it's like, what does your daddy tell you? And what, is your, what do you want to tell your daddy for Father's Day? Okay, so they're filming. And the pastor was telling this story. And I thought it was hilarious. The first kid, he goes up and great kid. He says, my daddy tells me he loves me. And I want to tell him that I love him too. And he's like, oh, my Father's Day gift, Father of the Year, right? 
Second kid comes up and just levels up. He says, you know what my daddy always tells me? That God loves me and Jesus died for me. Everyone's like, oh, right? They do family worship for sure. Third kid comes up, right? And this is the pastor's kid. So he's like, ready. My kids, bring it. Make daddy proud, right? First daughter says, daddy says, wash your hands. He's like, what? He's like, wash your hands, right? And then her little sister's right next to her. He's like, yep, daddy says, wash your hands. And he was just so shocked. But then he thought about it. He, re- he realized, that's what I say all the time. They come home, wash your hands, right? After they're done playing, wash your hands. Before we eat, wash your hands. After we eat, wash your hands. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, right? And he realized that that is what he's always saying to his daughters. And that's what they're picking up. That's the first Like, just boom. What does daddy say? Wash your hands. You know what Jesus says? He says that um, from the heart, the mouth speaks, right? From the heart, the mouth speaks. And I just want to also say that just as your words flow from your hearts, parents, your words flow into your children's hearts, okay? Your words flow into your children's hearts. And so when God calls you, to raise your children in the knowledge of the Lord. The only way that's going to happen is not if you just send them to Pastor Michael or Pastor Joe or Jason or any of our education pastors. The only way that's truly going to happen is if you speak the word of God into the hearts of your children. Right? Or are you just going to say, wash your hands? Right? Go to bed. Did you study? Did you eat? Thirdly, we're called to teach our children to keep the commands of God, to obey his word, to obey his word. That's what we're called to do as parents, to teach your children not to just obey you, okay? I know that that's like number one for parents. I want my kids to obey me. When I say go to sleep, go to sleep. When I say stop hitting your sister, stop hitting your sister, and all of those things, that's so important. You want to train them well, but that is not the end game. It's not even enough for you to say, okay, I'm going to teach my kids to obey their teachers and obey their pastors. No, God is calling you to teach your children to obey the Lord, to obey God. But friends, I want to ask you, are you teaching your children just good manners and morality apart from the word of God? Because if you don't use the word of God to teach them obedience, then you're teaching them morality. You're teaching them manners, and, and, and that's good, but that's not enough. Right? How many of you are able to quote from the scriptures why they shouldn't lie, why they shouldn't steal, why they shouldn't cheat, why they shouldn't be hitting and getting in fights with people? God has a word for that. And and if you teach them to do that, not just because mommy and daddy told you or not just because you're going to get in trouble, but because it honors God and it's obedience to God, then you are raising up young disciples to follow God and obey him. I once heard that this Puritan woman, now this is really radical and this is really extreme, but this is what she said. She said, I would rather hear of my child's death than hear of his sin." I would rather hear of my child's death than hear of his sin. Now, I don't think any of our parents would say that, but what, what kind of, pa- that just shows so much passion 
for the word of God and the holiness of God and so much passion that their children would be children who obeyed God and walked according to his word. That was what her heart was set on. Parents, I think this is wildly missing in our generation today. We want our kids to obey us. We do not teach them to obey the Lord. I want to challenge you to do that. I want to implore you to do that. The command is clear. To make disciples of all generations by teaching them to hope in God. And they're going to pick that up from you. To know his word and they're going to receive that from you. And to obey his commands. But it is easier said than done. And I want to take a moment to identify and unpack the challenges we face as we try to love and, and engage with all generations. And so that previous section I know is heavy on the families. Uh, here in this next section, I just want to talk about our context as a church that's uh, filled with college, singles, families, older adults. And so what is the challenge of loving and engaging with all generation, generations? You know, there's a, there's a new phrase called uh, generationalism. Okay? If you type it in Microsoft Word, it'll keep trying to correct you. And so my whole sermon, I was like, I was struggling. I tried to add it to the dictionary and it wouldn't let me. Right? <laughs> Generationalism. And it's so relevant today because we've grown accustomed to dividing people up by generations with stereotypes and differences. Now, it's one thing uh, to study generations and then come to learn about different generations and appreciate them right? so that we can maybe empathize better. Right? And we can connect at deeper levels. That's really good. But on the other hand, generation, generationalism can produce division. It can produce a broken community where we focus on all the differences, where we see all the gaps which separate us. Church, just as racism divides by ethnicity and skin color, okay? just as chauvinism divides men from women, right? driven by, by arrogance, driven by pride. Generationalism separates people based on age and life experience. Baby boomers, they're, they're viewed as, as self-centered and greedy, right? right? They, they just want to make their money and retire in Palm Springs, right? Those are the boomers, right? Um, Generation X, they are viewed as contrarian and neglected, Right? That's Gen X. They're contrarian to the, to the uh, baby boomers and they're neglected. Right? And millennials, they're viewed as entitled and superficial. Right? Boomers are like, why can't you put your phone down? Why can't you sit still for five minutes? Why do you now need a fidget spinner? Right? What is wrong with you guys? Right? And we don't understand each other and yet we label each other and it's so easy to judge one another and criticize one another and then live in this kind of separation and conflict. And friends, this line of thinking of generationalism and all of these divisions on all of these differences, it bleeds into the church. Older generations are judgmental towards younger generations because they seem so ungrateful. They seem so uncommitted. They'll say that younger Christians, they never tithe, Right? They don't sacrifice and they lack commitment. They're always just hopping from church to church, from friend group to friend group. Conversely, younger members, man, they're so indifferent to older members, right? They just don't care about older members. They don't care what older members think. Why? Because they're like, man, you guys are so out of touch, right? 
You're so irrelevant, right? You're so demanding. So many millennials just don't care about older, older people because they don't think they have anything to learn from older generations, right? And there's a huge problem there as well. Friends, are you guilty of this? Okay. As you think about people in the other life stages as, at our church, is your heart full of love and appreciation or is there condemnation and judgment? Is there indifference? Is there separation? And you're like, you know what? I'm, they can be here, but I just don't really care about them. All right? I don't see the point in investing uh, in a relationship with them or even striking up a conversation with them. Do you find yourself looking at others saying, you just don't understand because you're not part of my generation? The older people will say, you don't understand all the sacrifices we made for you. You don't understand how much work it took to get to this place. You're so ungrateful, you millennial, right? And then millennials are just like, I just don't care. I just don't. You say that all you want. Say that till you're blue in the face. I don't care, right? And that's like the worst thing you can say to a boomer. They're like, what? What do you mean you don't care? Well, if this is true of you, I want you to consider several warnings. Generational division, it fuels prejudice, okay? Generational division, the more we stay separated from one another, right? Segregated from one another, it's just going to grow and fuel our prejudice. I don't know if you guys knew, but there's a huge generational divide between the first and second generation church, right? Those who would speak Korean predominantly, they're all the people down on the you know, south, uh, other part of campus in the big buildings and all of that stuff. Um, just overall, not at our church per se, but in the church in America today for Asian Americans, there's a huge generational divide between immigrants and second generation members. And I actually had a lot of friends when I was applying here and decided to take the position here at All Nations, they were like, why are you going to a Korean church? Like, you don't even speak Korean that well, right? And I really don't, right? They're like, why would you do that? Right? You can go serve at a big Caucasian church or you can just go serve at a second generation Asian church that isn't bound to a Korean immigrant you know, uh, context, right? Just be free. Right? Do whatever you want to do. And, and, and people just didn't understand that. They're like, Michael, you don't have to take that job. You have options. And there's so many second-generation Korean pastors who'd be like, I will never work for a Korean church. I'll never work under a Korean church. I never even want to be there. I had a friend who was working at a Korean church, but he acted like he couldn't speak Korean. Right? But he actually could. He's better than me. Right? But he would act like he couldn't speak Korean so that he didn't have to talk to any of the Korean adults. Right? That's how much he didn't want to be in an intergenerational church. Gener uh, this kind of division, it fuels prejudice, right? If you have negative thoughts and emotions about your parents and the first generation community, and if they have likewise towards us and towards you, the more time we spend apart, the more we're gonna grow in our prejudice, in our condemnation, in our judgments. But intergenerationalism, it actually leads to appreciation, okay? My three years here of serving alongside Pastor Tay, the associate pastors, meeting the elders and deacons and doing ministry here, it has actually grown my appreciation for the first generation church, right? They're more than just prayer warriors. They're more than just big givers. They truly do love God. They love the word. And they do want to raise up generations that follow Jesus Christ. They want to see that. 
And so the more time we spend together in intergenerational ministry and in relationship, we can grow to appreciate one another. We can grow to see one another's strengths, gifts. We are better together than we are alone, okay? We absolutely are. All nations, community, church, we are a stronger ministry in interdependence and partnership with ANC Unity than what we would be if we just said, forget it, we're gonna find a building in Sunland and, and do our own thing, right? We'd have a huge debate. Are we going to the Valley? Are we going to La Crescenta? Where are we gonna go? And I'd be like, Pasadena? Um, but <laughs> no one would come to Pasadena except for like 10 people, right? Intergenerationalism, it leads to appreciation. Oz Guinness uh, writes in his book, uh, he wrote a book called Impossible People, and he said this. He said, no generation is ever as successful and healthy as it may imagine. It always has flaws that set up the next generation to react against the old one, just as the old one did to their predecessors when they were um, the younger generation. Intergenerational tension is inevitable. The old were all once young, and one day all the young will be old. All the people over 40, amen to that, right? right? The old were once young, and one day all the young will be old. And so we need to understand that it is inevitable. It's part of the life cycle that we are to experience and walk through in the church. And what's so important is that we understand that, that no generation is the perfect generation. No generation is as healthy as it likes to think they are, right? We all have our blind spots, but only when we spend time together can we see our blind spots, can we bear with one another's weaknesses and be a healthier, uh, more robust church together. So let's take a posture of humility and learning and realizing that we, when we actually spend time together, we can grow. Second warning, generational division robs us of wisdom and legacy, okay? If we remain right, compartmentalized and separated from one another, you will lose out on a, on a wealth, on a dearth of wisdom that is here in this room and available to you. And if you refuse to pour into a younger generation, if all you want to do is care about your life, your spouse, your peers, your needs, then you will miss out on the joy of legacy. Okay, so I'll say this. Younger people, wisdom is here for you. If you neglect the older, you're going to miss out. Older people, legacy is here for you. There's a spiritual heritage waiting for you to develop and establish. And if you don't care about younger people, you're gonna miss out on that as well. Um, I always tell college students that you, get, you guys give terrible relational advice, right? It's the blind leading the blind, right? So when it's college students are like, oh my gosh, should I date her? Should I break up with her? And they just get so emotional, they get so frustrated, and then there's like conflict because this person just dated my best friend and we used to be in small group together, and now what are we gonna do? I'm thinking about leaving the church, X, Y, and Z. And then they don't talk to their pastors. They don't talk to older brothers and sisters. They talk to one another, right? They'll text one another. They'll message one another. They'll meet up with one another. And, and friends, college students, I wanna say this, it's the blind leading the blind. They don't, y'all, y'all don't know what you're talking about, Okay? That's just a fact. And, and you know, young adults, I've, I've never been on Tinder, but I can tell you it's trash, okay? You guys don't need to be leaning on one another. It's like, oh, should I be on Tinder or should I see this person? You know, you know what there's available for you? Okay, if you wanna ask about relationships, 
If you are experiencing conflict, right? If you're trying to discern whether or not this person's a good fit, there are like 80 married people here who have gone through it, who've gone through breakups, right? Who have gone through engagement, who've gone through counseling, who've gone through these tough, difficult decisions, right? And they're here for you. Wisdom is here at your hands, right? You have to have the humility. You have to take the initiative to ask. And I guarantee you, if you're a college or a young person and you go up to any of our married families and you're like, hey, uh, can we meet for coffee? And I just wanted to ask you some questions about dating. I can't imagine a single married family here that's like, you should talk to somebody else, right? (laughs) They would love to share their heart with you. They would love to share their wisdom with you. And so let's not have the blind leading the blind. Let's benefit from generational wisdom that's available to us, right? And families, I just want to say this, that there's, there's no greater joy than pouring into a younger person and seeing them grow, make wise decisions and flourish in Christ. That is a legacy available to you, right? But it's going to take sacrifice and time. And I know a lot of times for for married families with kids, time is not something you have an abundance of, right? But I want to say this, it's worth it. This one's worth it. The third, caution, okay? First one was this, it fuels prejudice. Second, uh, if we miss out on it, we're we're gonna be robbed of wisdom and legacy. The third is this, generational division kills churches. It kills churches. Churches that fail to reach all generations cannot survive. Okay? cannot survive. It just takes one generation to neglect all of the other generations. And as soon as that generation dies, that church is closed. Okay? There are churches all over America that are just all filled with one life stage. And they go to church together. They don't care about any other generations. They grow old together. They die together. And their church shuts the doors. Right? Um, and so that's just a fact. Uh, it not only kills like in, in metrics, but it also kills you spiritually. It kills us spiritually, right? Because we're just only going to be ingrown. And we're going to be weary. We're going to be uninspired. We're going to be tired. But when we have multiple generations gathering and growing and serving, we are a holistic, robust church that God's designed. I'm going to uh, go quick through the last point. So the gathering of all generations. The first was the call. The second was the challenge. The third is the gathering of all generations, Right? What hope do we have? It seems difficult. It seems challenging. I have one final scripture passage for us today, and it comes from Titus 2. Okay? This is a picture of a multi-generational church. And so I want to see it. I want us to read it. And I hope that by God's grace, we'd become it. Paul writes to Titus, a leader in the church. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train to the young women and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, 
dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, unlawless, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good, good works. Amen. You see that? That's the church. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And I don't have time to unpack all of the wonderful details in this passage, but this is a picture of the church, a family of God consisting of multiple generations modeling for each other Christ, mentoring one another to live out the word of God, and a younger generation hungry and eager to grow in holiness for the glory of God. And in many ways, friends, this is unnatural, okay? It absolutely is. Socially, culturally, generationally, all of this is unnatural. You know what's natural? For college students to hang out with college students and families to hang out with families and singles to hang out with singles, right? That is natural. That's comfortable, right? That's friendship for most of us. But this is why Christ and the gospel is so important. Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all people. Here's the first thing we have to understand. Regardless of age and culture and social comforts, we are all saved by one Lord, one Christ, and one gospel. Okay. C.S. Lewis talks about friendship as being this kind of journey where you're living it and then you look at somebody and we're like, oh my gosh, you too. And you have shared passions and shared experiences. Now I'm gonna say this, yeah, married families, if you start talking to um, college students about like retirement and 401ks and mortgages, and you know, the conversation's like dead before it started, okay? You're not gonna experience Christ-centered friendship or a relationship there. Where do we begin? We begin with Christ. We begin with Christ. Paul talks about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and, he and, he, and he's trying to paint this picture of a, of a diverse church. And he says, this is the foundation for this community. You've all been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought salvation to all of us. He's given himself for us and he's redeemed us from all lawlessness and he's purified us as a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, church, we can only do this. We can only be a, uh, a church that makes disciples of all generations by the grace of God. So I wanna encourage you guys. I know that you'll look for natural affinities. I'm a golfer. I'm always looking for young golfers to hang out with, right? And you're gonna look for natural affinities. Maybe it's shopping or coffee or food or whatever it might be. But my prayer is this, be intentional. Center on Jesus, right? Talk about Jesus. Talk about your sins with one another. Talk about the grace that you've experienced. And at that point, we all have something to share. When we put the gospel at the forefront, this does challenge us, but it also empowers us to actually live this out. Church, let's look to one another. Let's see people we can learn from. Let's see people we can run with. 
and let's look for people we can pour into. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, um, for saving us by the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ. That though we were so distant, and even though we're so different at times from one another, we thank you that Christ and the power of the cross is enough to gather us, to save us, and to unite us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly be a church that's not centered around one common ethnicity. Help us not to be a church that just favors one demographic or one life stage. Lord, help us to be a church that is able to make disciples of all nations and all generations by the power of the gospel. Would you open our eyes to be able to see one another through the lens of scripture and of Christ. And God, I wanna pray a special prayer for our parents today as they've been challenged to raise their children to hope in the Lord, to know your word and to obey you. God, would you give them strength and patience? Would you help them to be diligent and devoted? And I pray for these husbands and wives to be united to really build their house upon the rock of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.